according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Proverbs chapter 8, coming down towards the end of this paragraph we've been in, 22 through 31, and then getting ready to uh, do the rest of the chapter in verses 32 through 36. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time of study, quieting our hearts, humbling ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for all of your grace in our lives day by day. Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word. We call upon your faithfulness to bless the study as we, uh, as we look, as we study to show ourselves approved. I do, I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're dealing with main point three in the outline, the most detailed passage of the scriptures pertaining to the uh, beginning of the begotten son. slide it was there we go slide five somebody let me remember slide five next week so i'll forget it again all right we're dealing with the issues of today i have begotten thee psalm 2 7 well what day is that today i have begotten thee is that wednesday what day is that for today all right well as it was spoken it was the only day there'd ever been it was uh, today, day one, of the alpha moment in terms of time, the boundary between eternity past and time, all right? That's uh, what we're dealing with here when we're talking about the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ. This is day one. The alpha moment is when he is begotten, all right? And then he was birthed. Birth came after begotten. Why does birth come after begotten? Because that's how it works, all right? First you're begotten, and then you're birthed. That's the process. And we're dealing with a sequence. And so now, for the very first time ever, God is experiencing sequence. That before the alpha moment, we're talking eternity past. Try to visualize, try to think in a timeless sense of what eternity was like when all there was was God. In the beginning was God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together for all eternity and fellowship and love and everything but timeless existence the i am in his timeless existence is now for the very first time experiencing sequence experiencing the unfolding of events the beginning of the humanity of jesus christ is that alpha moment it is the very first moment and and we've had moment after moment after moment after moment right we took a moment to open in prayer. I'm taking a moment now to introduce the subject. Uh, we'll have more moments for the rest of this hour. Uh, at the end of the Bible class, we'll have a moment of silent uh, prayer again to close the class. We're proceeding on a linear basis through time, moment by moment by moment. And we're headed to a future. We're headed to an eternity future where there will be an omega moment. So there's an alpha moment, 
there's an omega moment. I think I've used those terms before, but I haven't always explained what I mean by them. That alpha moment is the boundary between the timeless eternity past and the sequential temporal present. All right? But it's going to come to an end at the omega moment. Because what's on the other side of the omega moment? Eternity future. Correct. And it is the, again, timeless, as we can visualize it, as we can understand it. And so we're dealing with today I have begotten thee, and this is the, uh, at the time it was spoken, it was the only day. And I like the fact that God operates on a daily basis. We see it here at the end of the paragraph, uh, in verse 30. I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight. And so God is operating on a daily basis, right from day one, right from the alpha moment. He's operating on a daily basis. The humanity of Jesus Christ was designed to function and operate on a daily basis. All right? And if you want to ask certain questions about, well, why are we the way we are? Why is humanity the way it is? Uh, You could just simply quit worrying about it and say, well, that's just the way it is. Or you could accept that by design, things are the way they are for a purpose, for a reason. Why do we have the rhythms we have? Why do we need the sleep we need? Why do we have day and night and wake and sleep times? And why is humanity designed that way? And how much of that is a function of our physical existence, our bodies, but how much of that is really bigger than our physical existence? You know, if we didn't have these bodies, would we still operate on a daily basis? I believe we would. Because this passage here talks about Jesus Christ operating on a daily basis. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And now in the sight of the Father, we have the humanity of Christ rejoicing or playing, if we keep it in a childlike um, motif. He is playing before his Father rejoicing or playing in the world his earth and having my delight in the sons of man. And that's what we're going to expand upon here today before we move on to uh, the verses that follow. But you'll notice when we move uh, into the verses that follow, it's an admonition for humanity. And you'll notice the emphasis on daily reappears. It reappears in verse 34. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. So humanity is designed to have a daily activity. They have a daily operation. And and priority number one is supposed to be the Word of God. It's supposed to be focusing on God Himself. uh, Listening to His revelation, listening to His spoken Word, also watching and waiting. The the terms that are there. It's kind of fun because they all start with shh. Alright? And this may be a dangerous class to teach. Um only because until I'm missing the wind guard on, on, this, on this microphone. And I've ordered a replacement, and it should be here sometime tomorrow. Uh, but in the meantime, without the wind guard, um, the recording is probably going to be subject to a lot of uh, awkwardness anytime I do a shh. And we've got a lot of shh to deal with tonight, uh, today related to the vocabulary of listen, watch, and wait. And it becomes alliterative, it becomes memorable it's easy to remember if you have a trinity and they all start with the same letter um we almost have it with watching and waiting we got those that both start with w we just need to come up with a listening verb that starts with a w and we could do something similar 
in, uh, in English there with that verse. And I can't think of a listening word that starts with the W. Anyway, we'll get to that when we wrap the rest of this up. But the today I have begotten you is what we've been focusing on now for uh, three or four weeks, I guess, in, uh, in these classes. Of course, the John 1 parallel is in the beginning was the Logos. In the Proverbs version, it's from the beginning uh, was the wisdom. And the wisdom was begotten, woven, and birthed. Begotten, woven, and birthed. And it's the same order we go through. When we are begotten, when we are woven, when we are birthed, all right? When is personhood? Hillary Clinton got in trouble last week for talking about the unborn person. And that's not the appropriate terminology for the, for the pro-abortion crowd. Uh, but she used the phrase unborn person, and that got her in a lot of trouble with uh, folks on that side, all right? But it is the person, it's the same person that's birthed, is the same person that's woven, is the same person that's begotten. That's huge, biblically speaking, all right, as we understand the blessings of creation and procreation. So in John 1, it's in the beginning was the word. In Proverbs, it's from the beginning was the wisdom. And the wisdom was begotten, woven, and birthed. Yahweh acquired wisdom at the beginning, and he wove wisdom from the beginning. So he, he begat or acquired wisdom at the beginning. This is the alpha moment, followed by the weaving. So we have sequence. Acquired or begotten, woven from the beginning, woven, and uh, then birthed, to writhe, to travail, or to birth. And uh, we looked at the vocabulary there in subpoint E. Last week, we took the time to observe how it appears that the Father is the one doing all this creation, that it appears that uh, the Father is the one who is uh, settling the mountains, as it says here, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth, in verse 25. Then really, the verbs in verses 26 and following, when he had not yet made the earth and the fields. It seems like the Father is the one that's doing that, uh, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, it seems like the Father's the one doing that. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, again, it seems like the Father is the one doing that. And in these verses, in verse 26, 27, 28, 29, four verses in a row, he, the begetter, weaver, birther, or what we would say, God the Father, is the, is the subject of those verbs. And it might appear at first glance to, to contradict the New Testament. Because in John 1 and Colossians 1, we know that it's the Son who is the, is the Creator, not the Father. The Son is the Creator, but both are in view. Because it's through the Son that all things come to being. And that's what we see in verse 30. I was beside him as a master workman. So it's the Father who was commanding it to be done, the Father who designed it to be done, but it was the Son who did it. It was the Son who did it. That's why we have those statements repeatedly through the first six days of of the creation account. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Right? Do you ever think of it in those terms? Do you ever think of it in terms of the instructions that the architect is giving and then the obedience of the master workman? So we're told right here, I was beside him as a master workman. It's like what we have in John 1, where 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And that tandem of Father and Son and how they're working together. The Father says, the Son does. And so God the Father says, let there be light. And God the Son, in hypostatic union, the God-man, makes the light. All right? So we can think of it in these terms as well. So this was sub-point F. Yahweh is the creator with wisdom being present. Specifically, wisdom was present as the master workman. And so it is through the Son that these things get made. All right? Through the Son that everything is made. Because apart from him, nothing has come to be of all the things that have come to be. And I think that's uh, a blessing for us to consider as well. And so when we put it in this order, when we see these verses, and then I don't think we have to go back through and see these again, but in 1 John 1, 3, it's God the Son through whom everything was made. Likewise, verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, through him, all right? From the Father, through the Son. Colossians 1, 16, through him, and even more important, for him. Through him and for him. The whole purpose of the universe is his, not us. It's the purpose of the Father to glorify Jesus Christ through him and for him, not only the universe, but also the ages, Hebrews 1, 2, through whom also he made the ages, tas ionas, the ages. And so it is God the Son in hypostatic union that we celebrate. Subpoint G now, in the work of creation, this is where we ended last week, it is not simply God the Son achieving the designed will of God the Father. It is the God-man in hypostatic union achieving the designed will of God the Father. And you may not at the moment consider that it's a big deal or that it makes a difference or who cares. All right, But trust me, I, I think you will come to care, if you don't already, in coming weeks and months and years and, and at some point. All right? That the depths of this will become a significant feature in the nature of God's plan in, uh, in, in not only glorifying Jesus Christ, but glorifying through him all of humanity. That he is the firstborn of many brethren. All right? That as we see here, he has his delight in the sons of men. Well, why is that? Because he himself is humanity now. He himself has this human nature. All right? And so I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him playing if you ever watch a little kid play it's always interesting to observe what it is that they pay attention to all right and sometimes it's not the toy you thought they were going to like and you give them the toy and you think they're going to really like this toy and instead they're playing with a box the toy came in and you're like why does that happen you know why don't i spend money on this toy i could have just thrown him an empty box and he'd have been happy with it all right so you you start to figure out what is it that the Son is pleased with. And the Father, what's He pleased with? He's pleased with watching the Son. He's pleased with observing the future. Observing what's coming up. Okay, Why are we delighted in babies? Because they're cute? Well, yeah, they're cute. But beyond that, okay, what do they represent? What is the message? What is the significance of a child? That's the future. Okay, because, uh, you know, that's what we used to be, not anymore. 
Now, uh, now we've gotten older. Now we're producing those. Okay, and and we're not going to stop getting older. We're going to reach a point when we're going to stop producing those, and because we're too old to produce those. But then those that we did produce, they're going to reach this point. Okay, and they're going to start producing more of those someday. All right, and so the uh, what this represents. For humanity, which is eternal, but not yet experiencing that in the physical realm, all right, we get to observe the past, the present, the future unfolded in the, we're not creators, but we're procreators, and we get to observe the past, present, and future, almost a, a spectrum of, of the temporal present, we get to see played out in the generations. And if you don't think that's a treasure, stop to consider, angels don't get to do this. Every angel there ever was was brought about at the time they were created. They haven't seen the second generation, the third generation. They haven't seen grandchildren and so forth. Other than that rebellion with the Nephilim things, but that was not the design for the angels. Okay? They were created. They are eternal beings, but they don't get to see the portrayal of begetting and birth and maturity they don't, just, they don't get to see the child grow into the image of the Father. This is our blessing as humanity. We get to portray God the Father and God the Son. We get to image God. That's why Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. We get to image that dynamic between father and son, parent and child. And we get to see the child grow to that point of being a father, see, which for Jesus comes after the millennium when he becomes the, the father of the fullness of times, of the thousand generations in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why he's called the, in Isaiah, the everlasting father, right? Wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father. Mighty God. All right. So it's not simply God the Son. I, you know, like I say, it's a big deal. And, and, and if you don't give it any thought, if you don't think about it, if, particularly if you start the humanity in the manger, if it's the manger where hypostatic union begins, well then it was just God the Son, deity, that created everything. And, and we lose some of that significance. But if it's the God-man who creates everything, because it's not the manger that gives him his humanity, the manger gave him his body. The manger did not give him his humanity. The manger, all the manger gave him, all the pregnant virgin gave him was his body. Okay? Which is why it says in Hebrews, quoting Psalms, it says, a body thou hast prepared for me. Jesus is the only pre-existent person who preceded his own body, who needed a body to enter into. You and I don't. Okay? And then all those Buddhist teaching about that and, and, and reincarnation blasphemy, all kinds of other insane things about how you know, we too are eternal and we existed before the earth and we entered into our bodies and our mother's wombs. And all of that is just unbiblical and wrong but it's stolen from the idea that jesus christ himself was the eternal i am from all eternity past doug did you have a question on that oh mormonism yeah mm-hmm. yeah you're you're familiar with that aren't you you're growing up in that kind of all right and so he's watching the son playing and he's playing before him he's always in view of the father from birth from day one he is in the Father's view and observation. And this carries through 
His incarnation, his time on earth, was always in the presence of the Father, in the full view of the Father, until darkness on the cross. And my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for the first moment, in all this long sequence of moments, for the first moment ever, for three hours of moments, God the Son was no longer before the face of God the Father. That's something to think about in terms of that. All right, so rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth. Rejoicing in the world, his earth. I'm not talking about Mars or Jupiter or Pluto, which isn't even a planet anymore. Somehow it got demoted. Or uh, other, I don't care. It's still a planet in my book. I, that's, I grew up with that. It's a planet. Get, get over it. But, um, or other planets and other solar systems, other galaxies, whatever. The Milky Way, they tell us, is a real small galaxy compared to these other galaxies and whatever. I don't care. You know, and are we really robbed? Jupiter's got 24 moons. Saturn has like 36 moons or something. Mars at least has two moons. And what do we got? One crummy moon. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we got cheated or something. Like, what a boring place. But this is special. There's no other place like this place anywhere in existence, anywhere in all of creation. Because the earth is his world, right? Rejoicing in the world, his earth. This is the the specific blessing of this location. Atheists don't like it. They say, oh, come on, you're arrogant to think this is the only planet that can support life. Why? It's not arrogant, it's biblical. Why would God put an earth-like place anywhere except earth? We don't need multiple places, we need one. We need one venue, one venue to demonstrate the evil of Satan's rebellion. And he does so through humanity. We don't need all the science fiction worlds. We don't need Vulcans and Wookiees and Ewoks and other alien beings and whatever else, okay? We need humanity. Humanity is what's going to resolve the rebellion of angelity. And humanity resolves it because Jesus Christ is the God-man. All right, so it's biblical to accept these things. Now under this, his play, his delight, it's in the world slash earth, but it's especially in the sons of men. That's what gets highlighted here. It's what closes the, the paragraph. Having my delight in the sons of men. So the father had his delight in the son. The son had his delight in the sons of men. In the sons of men. And I apologize. I got a little small on that point because I was trying to squeeze one, two, and three on the same slide. That's smaller than I like to go. Um, His delight or his play. Not in the angels. Not in the animals. If you think about it, man came pretty late in the whole history of this galaxy, in the whole history of the of the universe, of all the moments from the alpha moment to omega. How many moments were there between alpha and Adam? There was a long time between alpha and Adam. And even more between Adam and Seth and the descendants, the sons of, of man. Okay? 
because angels were here first. In fact, angels populated this earth. Angels had a rebellion. Angels had a war, the destruction of which ended with the world being tohu wabohu in Genesis 1-2. We saw that in Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 14 and Jeremiah chapter 4, especially Jeremiah chapter 4. The downfall of, of those nations, the downfall of those cities, the destruction of that angelic earth. The world, his earth, was made tohu wabohu. So there were many, many moments prior to Adam. And yet, from the moment of his birth, in the daily playing before the Father, his delight was in the sons of men. His delight was in the humanity to come. Okay? That becomes significant. The Father and the Son did not delight in the sons of God who observed the creation of the earth, but in the sons of men. It is so significant. It's not the B'nai Ha'elohim. The B'nai Ha'elohim, the, the sons of God, the mightiest of all the angelic beings, called themselves gods. They called themselves, and the Bible calls them gods. They were Elohim, after all. And they were B'nai Ha'elohim. But that's not who the Father delighted in, and that's not who the Son delighted in. Let's go to Job 38 and take a look at this. I've referenced it a couple of times. So back up, Job right in front of Psalms, right in front of Proverbs. Job 38, 7. This is a part of the where were you? And I think uh, it's, it's a significant chapter on its own right for several other reasons, but uh, specifically, Job helps us to plug in some of the questions in Genesis. Some of the questions in Genesis that don't have answers in Genesis. Okay? So with all of the uh, uh, self-justification that Job engages in, and then all of the non-answers that his friends give, and then finally with the discourse of the young man, Elihu, we have uh, some, some good wisdom that's portrayed there. And then ultimately, God himself speaks up because Elihu didn't have the last word on what was going to rebuke Job. God does. And so the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I think had Job been responsive to Elihu, then this would not have been necessary. Sometimes the still small voice works and sometimes it's the whirlwind because we're not listening for that still small voice. So the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Just because people don't know things doesn't keep them from talking. You might have noticed that. There's a lot of politicians out there. They can talk, 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 talk. And you wonder, do you know anything? Words without knowledge. He says, Now gird up your loins like a man. That's significant. This is a language of, of an adult man. In other words, grow up. A little boy can't buckle his own buckle or, or dress himself or whatever, but you got your big boy pants on? All right. Buckle up. Teach me something. Gird up your loins like a man. That's significant. This is what God wants. He doesn't want to populate heaven with a bunch of babies up there. He wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God the Father wants to fellowship with us on an adult basis, with adult capacity for fellowship. 
Gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you. You instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. This is your chance now. He's had in all these chapters, he's argued his case, and he's affirmed that he knows better than God does. That God's been unfair. That if he just has the right venue, he can prove it. But God's not being fair because God won't give him an audience in his courts. And so this is God's response, saying, you know more than I do? I'm unfair? Are you God? Were you there? Or was I there when you did it? Or were you there when I did it? Where were you? Now, we've talked this before, but think of it now with the advantage of Proverbs 8. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And think about those verses. When he laid the foundation of the earth, I was there. Is what wisdom says in in Proverbs 8, right? When he did this, I was there. When he did that, I was there. When he did this, I was there. I was beside him as a master workman. See, Jesus can answer all these questions because he was there. Job wasn't. Okay? So where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? It was God the Son in hypostatic union, not Job. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone or its capstone? This is the passage, by the way, that led Clarence Larkin to believe that Job was the, the builder of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. Because the architecture here seems to be a pyramid that has a single line that's hung, a plumb line, if you will, that's hung, setting its measurements, stretching the line on it, sinking plural bases. It has plural bases that are sunk first, and then it has a capstone last of all, or a cornerstone in a pyramid shape becomes the capstone, becomes the cornerstone, the point of the pyramid. And if so, can't prove it, but it's what Larkin thought, but if so, that is a significant human achievement. In 2016, we still don't know how they built the Great Pyramid. And every pyramid that was built after that was never the same. It was never the size, they, they could never build another one after the Great Pyramid. They tried. Dozens of pyramids around the world. Nothing matches that great pyramid at Giza. And you think, how could, a, how could a culture start with a masterpiece and then never measure up after that? You know, you, you tend to think that human trial and error kind of does little things, little th- learns from it, little things, learns from it, gets bigger, gets bigger. Gets... You would think that that great pyramid at Giza would be the final one ever done. And you'd be wrong. If, uh, if in fact... Job is the builder of the pyramid, and whether he is or he isn't, I don't think it matters. But if he is, think about how powerful this rebuke becomes. Because Job has accomplished perhaps the greatest building ever in the history of mankind. And God's saying, who are you, Job? (laughs) Who are you? Is God impressed with anything man-made? All right. So, Job wasn't there, but somebody else was. Multiple people were, in fact. Not just God the Son in a hypostatic union, but there was an audience for the earth. There was not an audience for the universe, for the galaxies and all the other planets and everything else. I think in the beginning God created the heavens, and I think he stretched them all out together. 
We have Psalms that says he stretched out the heavens. So simultaneously, the whole universe came into existence. He spoke, and the universe came into existence. And it was stretched out. It has reached its maximum extent. All right. And notice there was an audience. When the morning stars sang together, and all the B'nai Ha'elohim, all the sons of God, shouted for joy. There was an audience for the creation of the earth. Now, we're going to put this in a strict sequence within Genesis 1. And again, these are answers, these are questions in Genesis that are being answered outside of Genesis, all right? Because in beginning, God created the heavens and the heavenly host. Okay, it doesn't say that in Genesis 1. But cherub showed up somewhere because a cherub is posted with a flaming sword at the garden when Adam and Eve get kicked out. So we know that cherubims exist when Adam becomes a sinner, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. There are cherubim already in existence. We just don't see them before the angel is posted there with a flaming sword when they get kicked out. But Genesis 1 does not give us these answers. When do the cherubim get created? That's still a question in Genesis. Okay. So, the morning stars. This appears to be a division of the angelic being. Many times angels are called stars. But a particular group of them called morning stars, plural, not just one. In modern times, Venus is called the morning star oftentimes. In fact, even in the ancient world, Venus was considered the single morning star. But uh, this is morning stars, plural, and it appears to be an award of some sort. Jesus is entitled to it. You and I will be entitled to it in, in uh, church age rewards for the overcomer. But here is a group of angels that have received the morning star award or privilege or blessing. Uh, membership in the uh, angelic choir, perhaps, is awarded to the recipients of the morning star. But they sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Not just the morning stars, that was the choir, the chorus, but all the B'nai Ha'elohim shouted for joy. They were excited to see the world, his earth, the very toy that Jesus was playing with as he was playing with the world, his earth, in Psalm 8, or in uh, Proverbs 8.31. So uh, they were on hand to watch, okay? And I find that significant. I find I think it's a parallel. I view it very similarly to the uh, view, uh, the the instruction that God gave Adam. Because in the Genesis creation account for the restoration of the earth for human occupation, God created everything, but left something out. Right? What did He leave out? The woman. That's right. Yeah, He left out the woman, and so He created everything else. The light, the darkness, the sea, the dry land, the animals, the creepy crawly things, the birds, the fish. Man, but man was alone. He did not create Eve on day six. That's another question in Genesis. Answers in Genesis has it wrong. They have Eve created on day six. That all of the, they, they, they shove everything they can into day six. Because they have to, they have to, have to, in defending their theology, they have to have it all on day six so they can bank on the, the, the declaration that everything was very good on day seven. But Adam's looking around and he's naming the animals. 
And he's giving them their names and he's working with them. And he's finding that none of them is a worker, a workman suitable for him, for his assignment to image God, for his assignment to rule the earth and subdue it. Okay? He needed woman. He needed to observe the need. And, and God knew that it was not good for man to be alone, but man didn't know it was not good for man to be alone until man figured it out. <laughs> and he named all the animals. And he said, there's no one corresponding to me. And when man identified the need, God provided. That's how he operates. See, he knows what we need before we ask. Why do we ask? It is our public declaration to God and angels and everyone alike that we have identified the need and we are calling upon the faithfulness of our Father to meet that need. Now, was that something similar in terms of the the missing earth? I think the missing earth is the parallel to the missing Eve, the missing woman. All right? Because the whole universe is in place, including the Milky Way, Andromeda, all these other galaxies, okay? What other galaxies? I only know two. Um, there's other galaxies, okay? And, uh, but something was missing. And what did it take for the angels to observe that? To learn that? To observe what's the nature of Venus and Mars and Jupiter and What's the nature of all these other solar systems? What's the nature of all these other black holes and quasars and whatever else? But there was something missing. And they had to learn that. They had to be taught that. Why is the earth created the way that it is? Well, they're brought around and God says, all right, now watch this. And it's interesting because Adam was put to sleep. Adam couldn't watch Eve until he woke up and there she was. Okay? They were watching. They were watching as Jesus Christ had his delight in the sons of man, as he rejoiced in the world, his earth. And uh, so there it is. It goes on. Who enclosed the sea with doors and when bursting forth and went out from the womb, when I made a cloud and I placed boundaries and thick darkness at swaddling band and all these things. There's so much in this. The way to the dwelling of light and darkness, where is its place? When you get down to verse 19, you realize there are dimensions beyond the physical universe dimension. And uh, heaven is an extra-dimensional place, the dwelling of light. Hell is an extra-dimensional place, the realm of darkness. We have heaven above and hell below, or Sheol as the Hebrews called it. The dimension of light, the dimension of darkness. So when he says, let there be light, what's he talking about? It's not sun, moon, and stars. That's day four. What's the let there be light in day one? All right. More questions in Genesis, answers in Job. All right. (laughs) And I hope you got the point. I'm not hostile to that organization. I like what they do. I like answers in Genesis. I like... uh, Different. I mean, they've got competitors. There's other creation science groups that are out there. Um, I, I, I love what they do in their argumentation against evolution and against Big Bang, and I, I like what they do in defending creationism. But they uh, they reject Gap, and they reject. Uh, they've got a, a pathetic angelology, and they um, they they also have a very flawed definition of death uh, as a perversion of Romans five. 
And, and I find it staggering that so much of what they hang their hat on as an organization called Answers in Genesis actually needs Romans 5 and the, the abuse of Romans 5 to anchor their whole theology in Answers in Genesis. Anyway, that through one man, death came into the world and death and or sin came into the world and death through sin. Finally, the image and likeness of God takes on an entirely deeper significance when we identify the God-man in hypostatic union as the one who fashioned Adam. The one who fashioned Adam. <coughs> what, do, what do little kids do when they draw pictures? When they make, uh, when they make things out of Play-Doh or clay or whatever, they're... They're, 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 they make representations of what? Oftentimes of themselves or their family. Little kids drawing pictures. Here's mommy, here's daddy, here's me, here's my siblings. And they're drawing pictures of, of, of themselves in their own image, in their own concept of, of who they are and where they relate. I think it's significance. It's very significant. Humanity is relational. Humanity is relational. Some of the worst struggles any human ever has is that wrestling with who they are and where they belong. Okay? Young people that are trying to figure out who they are and where they belong. And uh, what are they going to do when they grow up? And they're kind of grown up now. They should probably figure stuff something out. Well, that's a struggle. Just in all your ways acknowledge him, he will direct your steps, all right? You will make your path straight. And so uh, here's Jesus Christ molding Adam from the dust in Genesis 1.27. Actually, chapter 2 gives us the dust detail, but God said, let us make man in our image. Why is God speaking in the plural? Because God is Trinity, we get that, but also specifically because we have the Father begetting wisdom, and we have wisdom as the master workman, and God says, let us, Father and Son, make man in our image. Our image. The image of the Father who begat the humanity of the Son. Okay? And so... We have Trinity at work there in Genesis 1. And then we have Spirit. because Breath comes into the body, comes into the clay. And uh, it's not the Holy Spirit that's providing that breath, but we know that it is. So anyway, Trinity's at work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in providing life to to this man. And he's in the image and likeness of God. Does that not become much more significant if it's the God man doing that? as opposed to just God the Son and His deity, who, hasn't, who won't receive His humanity until the manger. See, I think it makes a big difference that it's God the Son already in hypostatic union, true humanity, involved in, in uh, creating Adam. And so we have it there. Now, any questions on that? Because I'm going to move on then to verse uh, 32 and following. All right. The chapter, the final paragraph of the chapter, 
is, uh, is an exhortation that's built on what we've just been studying. <coughs> now, therefore, O sons, listen to me. Now, therefore, O sons, you see that in verse 32? It comes right after 31 with having my delight in the sons of man. Now, therefore, O sons, sons of men, listen to me, Jesus Christ, wisdom, the begotten Son of God. See, Proverbs is not simply David and Solomon providing wisdom to their sons. This is point four in your outline. Point four. Proverbs is not simply David and Solomon providing wisdom to their son, or their sons, plural. But God the Son, wisdom, is providing instruction to the sons of men. Wisdom is providing instruction to the sons of men. Now, therefore, O sons, listen to me. For blessed, happy, are they who keep my ways. Happy, in verse 34, is the man who listens to me. This is what it's about. What is our happiness grounded in? That's the other issue that humanity struggles with, right? I was saying a few minutes ago, it's the, uh, the, the great turmoil that goes through the soul as a human tries to figure out who he is and where he belongs. How about the uh, human that's trying to figure out what makes him happy? You know, a lot of times, if you can't figure out who you are or where you belong, at least you can find a way to make yourself happy and then not worry about the rest of it. But, but what is our source of happiness? What is the asherah happiness for humanity? It's, it's the Word of God. It's listening to His voice and it's keeping His ways. Listening and obeying. Listening and heeding as we see it here. So it's not just simply David and Solomon providing wisdom to their sons, but it's God the Son, wisdom, providing instruction to the sons of man. And He does so, first of all, before He ever becomes a father, but He does so, first of all, as the older brother. He is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn has certain uh, perks. (laughs) I was a firstborn, I like that. Um, Which meant a lot of responsibility. Okay, also a lot of blame. And a lot of, uh, why did you let your sister do that? Why did you let your brother do that? Oh, am I my brother's keeper? I, I, I guess so, I'm responsible. I better set the example. I better show them what's right and show them what's wrong. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of many brethren, the firstborn of all creation. And he has a message to his siblings as to what pleases the Father. How is it that we can listen and heed? How we can listen, learn, and live? How is it that we can operate on a a human basis for the good pleasure of God the Father? That's what it's about. And so Proverbs is God the Son providing instruction to the sons of men. Thirty-two. Let me get 32 through 36 here as a unit. Therefore, son, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. Why gates and why doorposts? All right. Because there's a place we're not yet, but there's a place we want to get to. For he who finds me finds life. 
and obtains favor from the Lord. Now I'm giving it away. This is soteriological. This is salvation. You find Christ, you find life. You obtain favor. You, the, the only grace that's going to come to you from God the Father uh, on a soteriological basis is the Son. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. So there's those who love Jesus Christ and those who hate Jesus Christ. And those who hate Jesus Christ will spend all eternity in the lake of fire following the great white throne judgment. And those who love Jesus Christ, including a thousand generations of those who love me, will be populating the new heavens and the new earth up to that omega moment, and then will populate all eternity future uh, beyond that. So we have uh, a powerful text here. In ten minutes to uh, teach it. How about that? Now there's next week if we don't get through it in ten minutes. Verse 32 defines Shama, to hear, to listen, or to obey. The, the Hebrew verb is Shama. Okay? We had it in chapter 1. I've already given you the vocabulary. I'm giving it to you again this morning. <coughs> Shows up 30 times in Proverbs. The verb is Shama. And it, it closes with a, a, a guttural consonant that's hard for English speakers to get out. The Ayin. The Ayin consonant i was told uh by my hebrew teacher years and years ago that you you have to swallow and cough and 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 almost sneeze at the same time and you can get the lion sound in the in the back of your throat all right so it is shamat some people just give up and make it a kind of a k sound or a q sound shamak uh but that's awkward because there's other hebrew letters that make the k sound so, shamak. Now, shamak means to listen. It means to hear, but it's more than that. It is to hear in the humility and obedience and reverence of accepting what it is you're being told. It is, it is, it is really the essence of, of James. With humility, receive the word implanted that is able to save your soul. It's not just listen and let it go in one ear and out the other. It's not just listen and consider whether it's worth your time or not. Okay? I think sometimes we listen, but we listen with a bit of a negative edge. We listen with an a, a element of humanity that's going to wait to hear it all and then decide what, what we're going to do about it. Okay? And that's not biblical. If God's the one that's speaking, then we better listen from step one with the fear of the Lord reverence that listens, truly listens with complete surrender. And this is, this is the, the, the legitimate place for lordship. Okay? Not in terms of getting saved, but in terms of listening to doctrine. Listening to the word of the Lord. When, when the prophet stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, right, we ought to immediately be in the fear of the Lord receptive to whatever the Lord is speaking. That's fear of the Lord, humble, receptive. That's what Shammah speaks to in terms of listening. Okay? 
And you can read all the lexicons on earth. Pick your favorite Hebrew lexicons, okay? B-Day or B-D-B or uh, <coughs> uh, H-A-L. I like H-A-L a lot or some of the other ones, okay? Lexicons can give you definitions. Context determines meaning. And the context here defines it. Because we have the first half of the verse, we have the second half of the verse, and they're in parallel. What's the parallel? Happier they who keep my ways. So we see that it's parallel with keeping. Listening is parallel to keeping. If you don't keep his ways, you weren't listening. You weren't shamat listening. You might have been listening with some other Hebrew verb, but you weren't shamat listening if you're not doing something about it, if you're not responding. See, if again, book of James, if you're a hearer only and not a doer, then you're not a hearer. As the Old Testament uses shamat. Okay? By the way, Strong's number is 8085. S-H-A-M-A. In, in angle your apostrophe to the right instead of to the left. That tells you that it's a lion instead of an olive. Shamat. This verb is used 1,158 times in the Old Testament. It is one of the most common verbs you'll ever come across anywhere in the Old Testament. 1,158 times. The Bible has a lot to say about listening, about hearing. It's used here in verse 32, in verse 33, and in verse 34. New American Standard renders it with heed in verse 33. And that bugs me. Maybe they just didn't want the redundancy. So they have listen, heed, listen in 32, 33, 34. Heed instruction and be wise. It should be shamak. Listen to instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who shamak listens to me. So it's used in three straight verses here. 32, 33, 34. Uses shamak, shamak, shamak. And for the life of me, it bugs me. I I think it's for stylistic reasons. They felt necessary to change the uh, listen to a heed in verse 33. I don't have any problem with the word heed. But if you're going to use it, use it everywhere. Use it in all three verses. If you're going to use listen in in verse 32, and then use it in 33 and 34. It's because it's the same verb in all three verses. And I think uh, by, by providing that variety, I think the, the English-speaking reader is going to miss the point. It's being hammered home. Listen, listen, listen. And the next one, too, by the way, keeping my way, shamer, that's used twice in this passage. It's the word that's used for waiting at my doorposts in verse 34. Keeping my doorposts in verse 34. We'll have to talk about that as well. So if you want, yeah, go look up a lexicon. You can find definitions for shamat. and It'll tell you to listen, to hear, sometimes to obey. Sometimes it's rendered obey because you're listening with that fear of the Lord reverence that is prepared to do whatever it is you're told to do. <coughs> this, by the way, was the, uh, my mother had this word written on her Bible, in the front of her Bible. And I remember sitting next to her as a young child looking over there and she had 
S-H-A-M-A with an apostrophe at the end of it. And I didn't know when, what in the world that was. I'm just a little kid. You know, what's, what's, what's Shema? You know, I didn't know. And uh, my mother said, well, that's, that's a Hebrew word. It's pronounced Shema. And it means to hear, to listen, and to obey. I don't think I was much more than, I don't know, six or seven years old probably at that time. All right, so we have the, the definition of it here. Now you'll notice, we'll pick up on this next week, but there's parallels in the poetry. Listen is parallel to keep my ways. The shamat is parallel to the shamer. The verb to keep is shamer. Almost the same, I mean, it's got the first two letters. It's only that third radical that's, that's different. Remember, every Hebrew verb basically has three letters. The first, the second, and the third consonant. In this case, both shamat and shamer start with the, the sh and the m. Okay? Sheen and maim. But shamat has sheen, maim, ayin, and shamer has sheen, maim, resh. But they're in parallel. Shamat is parallel to shamer. So if you're not keeping his ways, you're not listening. You're not listening to him. And vice versa. If you're not listening to him, you're not keeping his ways. That's why there's so many non-disciples that are out there, because they're not listening to him. They're non-disciples. They're not abiding in his word. To give this a John 15 parallel. Well, let's see. I'll give you the Shemir vocabulary next week. We'll talk about the different examples there. Then we'll talk about being wise, being happy. Understand the blessed are, the blessed is. That's, that's happiness. That's not eulogetos, but it's happiness. We'll talk about those things. Finding me finds life and obtains favor. All right. We have an Old Testament gospel right here. And... Uh, different things that we can study there that I think will be a blessing for us as well. Lord willing and rapture pending, we'll come back next week and uh, tackle this some more. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this time. Father, I pray that we would be mindful of who we are in Christ, who we are in God the Son, the God-Man, the hypostatic union. That, Father, we are in Him. We are fellow heirs with Him. We do stand before you as He stood before you. Father, he played before you, we should play before you. He listened to you, we should listen to you. Father, he is our prototype. He is our forerunner. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And Father, we want to uh, live according to the example that we have in him. I thank you for this study. I ask for your blessing upon it in the days and weeks and months ahead. Father, make it very real to each one of us that we might hear, that we might obey. Um, in the right way and for the right reasons. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.